Welcome to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. Our greatest hope is to see more and more college students believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you're encouraged by this message. Well, I should start by saying, please forgive me for sounding a little nasally, kind of losing my voice. Apparently my body is in some sort of death process. Uh, Nevertheless, here we are. Uh, We're going to go with it. Uh, What do you want to be when you grow up? It's like the quintessential kid question, right? What do you want to be when you grow up? I, I, I asked my kids the other day, and, and at least as of yesterday, it, it changes, it seems like, every other day. Uh, my oldest daughter, Lily, wants to be a mom and a teacher. Lucy wants to be an artist. And Jack wants to make popcorn and be a superhero, probably Batman, he says. Now, of course, hearing their answers uh, often makes me curious about what my own answer was when I was a kid. And so the other day I called my mom and I said, hey mom, what, what did I tell you and dad all the time that I wanted to be when I grow up? And, and I'll be honest, I was shocked to hear from her that, that she told me from a young age, I always wanted to be a pastor. I'm just kidding, no kid wants to be a pastor. <laughs> As it turns out, I didn't want to be a pastor, uh, and, and really, it didn't matter, apparently, what I did, because my mom said most often, I said, it doesn't matter, I just want to be rich. Woof. I think God gets the last laugh with that one. Regardless, though, of how we answer that question, what do we want to be when we grow up? Isn't it interesting that there's something in us, there's something about us, even from an early age, that causes us to dream about who we're going to be someday and, and what we're going to do with our lives. I've been thinking a lot about that lately, probably because I, I read a book recently put out by the Barna Group. If you aren't familiar with the Barna Group, Barna is a self-described visionary research and resource company in California that is considered to be a leading research organization that's, that's focused um, mostly on the intersection of culture and faith. That's kind of what the the Barna Group's bread and butter is. And this book that I was reading called Faith for Exiles, it's a, it's a synthesis of some of their research that they've done in the United States on, on 18 to 29-year-olds. Now, I know you're thinking, sounds riveting, right? Uh, it's actually pretty interesting. Here's, here's, here's what they did. Over 10 years, they, they interviewed thousands of 18 to 29-year-olds, thousands of them. And, and specifically, Uh, These 18 to 29-year-olds are people that have grown up calling themselves Christians. And so they they ask them uh, in these thousands of interviews, they ask them, uh, what are their experiences with Christianity? What are their experiences with Christian formation? And here's what they found. They found of today's 18 to 29-year-olds, here's here's what's happening to those that grew up calling themselves Christians. 22%, they said, uh, are what they have self-titled as prodigals. In other words, ex-Christians. 22%. People uh, don't call themselves Christians anymore. 
30% of Barna is calling nomads, people who identify as Christians but, but haven't attended church in the past month, and most of which haven't attended church in the past six months. 38% are what Barna calls habitual churchgoers, people who would call themselves Christians and, and have been to church in the last month but wouldn't be considered a, a, an intentional, engaged disciple, someone who, who follows Jesus regularly. And lastly, that leaves 10%. 10%, and uh, Barna calls them resilient disciples. What makes a resilient disciple? Well, people who attend church and engage with church at least monthly. People, 18 to 29-year-olds, who trust firmly in the authority of the Bible, People committed to, to Jesus personally and affirmed that he in fact was crucified and rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And even more, they express a desire to transform the, the broader society as a result of their faith. And, 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 and to be honest, most of that information you get in the very introduction of the book, uh, it's just background because the main focus of the book is on that 10%. The 10% that Barna calls resilient disciples. In particular, Barna wants to know, what's their story? What makes them tick? In a culture that's increasingly indifferent and, and, and sometimes hostile to Christianity, how do these 18 to 29-year-olds persevere with a robust faith in Jesus? Now, of course, on one level, they persevere by the power of the Holy Spirit, Right? But Barna asks, what, what beliefs, what practices do, does this age group routinely perform that helps them sink roots deep enough to sustain them for a lifetime of faithfulness to Jesus? In other words, Barna wants to ask the question, what helps build resilient disciples? Good. What helps build Resilient disciples, that's a question throughout this book. And I think it's a relevant question for us, for you, for me. What, what builds resilient disciples? What helps us grow and mature our faith in Jesus? What helps us handle the ups and downs of a turbulent culture? What helps us stay faithful to Jesus? Well, based on their research, Barna has come up with, suggests five practices they found five, what they say, soul-shaping things that all resilient disciples, this 10% of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of interviews they'd done, that they all have in common. Now, if that sounds at all interesting to you, you gotta get the book, because I'm not gonna talk about all five tonight. I just wanna talk about one. And I wanna talk about the one that, to be honest, it was the one out of the five that, that was most surprising to me. And it's this, according to their research, over 10 years, with thousands of 18 to 29-year-olds, what builds resilient, faithful disciples of Jesus? A well-developed theology of work and calling. In other words, a clear understanding what the Bible says about work. Now, that was surprising to me. It wasn't what I expected, but, but it got me thinking, and so here we are. And I know, I'll say up front, I know that talking about work isn't flashy, it's not exactly a hot topic in our culture, and yet if Barna is right, if Barna's right, understanding what the Bible says about work is going to be crucial to you having a vibrant faith in Jesus moving forward, not just this semester or this year, but, but 10 years from now. 
And that's because all of us, we know this, right? We're all going to have some kind of job at some point. Maybe it's our dream job. Maybe, maybe it's just a job that gets us through the day. But we're all gonna work. And if that's true, why wouldn't we talk about it? So here's what we're gonna do tonight. I, I wanna talk about three common myths. Three common myths about work in our culture and what the Bible has to say about each of those things. And again, I'll say up front, I know that I can't possibly say everything that there is to say about work. Some of what I'm gonna say isn't probably new to some of you, but my hope is that whether this is completely new or a little bit new or not new at all, that it's helpful to you in continuing to develop a healthy biblical theology of work, okay? All right, first myth, work is a necessary evil. Work is a necessary evil. Five or six years ago, it kind of all blurs together at this point for me, uh, I came across an article in the New York Times uh, that, that I think captures this myth really well. I, I, I think about it often. I've saved it. Here's part of what it says. Here's an excerpt. It says, there's an underlying ambivalence about work in the United States. We celebrate Labor Day by not working. The book of Genesis says that work is punishment for Adam's sin, and many of us count the days to the next vacation and see a contented retirement as the only reason for working. We're ambivalent about work because in our capitalist system, it means work for pay, wage labor, not for its own sake. It is what philosophers call an instrumental good, something valuable not in itself, but for what we can use it to achieve. For most of us, a paying job is still utterly essential, as masses of unemployed people know all too well. But in our economic system, most of us inevitably see our work as a means to something else. It makes a living, but it doesn't make life. Now, there are lots of things that we could talk about, at least that I find interesting from that quote in the New York Times, but, but two things in particular stick out to me. One is that notice the writer says that work is a punishment for Adam's sin. Work is a punishment for Adam's sin. And two, he says that work is valuable not in itself, but only for what we can use it to achieve. In other words, to, to steal a lyric from the song that, that you all walked into from Blink-182, this guy's kind of saying work sucks. I know, right? He's saying that we work, why? Because we have to, not because we want to. We work and it makes a living, but it certainly doesn't make life. Now, maybe that's what you believe. Maybe that's how you think about work, whether it's the work that you're doing now or the work that, that you'll do someday. Maybe work to you is just a consequence for sin. It's got no real purpose. It has no real dignity on its own beyond what it can be used for you to achieve. And let me just say, if that's you, you're certainly not the only one. I mean, I, I definitely used to think that way. The problem, though, is, is that the Bible disagrees with us. See, the Bible says that work isn't a necessary evil at all. See, it's interesting. In most religions in, in history and, and throughout the world, the gods don't work. Right? So for example, um, many religions in the ancient Near East, they, they teach that, that the gods didn't create the world. At best, their actions somehow brought it about by chance. Uh, similarly, the gods of ancient Greece, they didn't create. 
Aristotle said that that God was an unmoved mover, an immaterial substance, pure thought dwelling in a celestial isolation. Epicureans taught that God or the gods probably maybe, okay, they kind of made the world, but they lost interest in it and abandoned it ages ago. Greco-Roman mythology, often gods just lays about Mount Olympus, right? This is the Bible, it, it, it teaches something radically different though. The Bible teaches that in the beginning there was what? Work to be done, literally. See, in the beginning, Genesis 1, verse 1, God tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. He creates everything. By his authority, God speaks and creation obeys. God takes disorder and darkness and out of it he brings order and and beauty and goodness and flourishing. He creates this world where, where flourishing can happen. But God isn't done after creating the world. You see, at the peak of his creative work, God makes images of himself in the world. Look at Genesis 1, picking up in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living thing, every living creature that moves on the ground. You see, the crown of God's creation is humanity. It's humanity. And as people created in God's image, humans are tasked with the job of reflecting God's character in the world. We're given the authority to rule as his representatives, and and we have the responsibility of of harnessing the earth's potential by by creating beauty and order and, and flourishing. And to give humanity a picture of what that looks like, what does God do? He he puts Adam in the garden. He puts Adam in the garden. Look at Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, now, think for a second. Remember what that New York Times article said. Work is what? A punishment for Adam's sin. But here in Genesis 2.15, God puts Adam in the garden long before sin ever enters into the biblical story. And so how can work be a punishment for Adam's sin if God puts Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it? I can't. Work isn't evil. It's not something to avoid. Rather, according to God, working, cultivating the garden and beyond, it's it's how we reflect his character in the world. It's it's how we rule. It's it's part of fulfilling our responsibility to to harness the earth's potential, to, to take the earth somewhere. And so our work as human beings, it's rooted in the fact that God works and that God says that work is good. See, when God finished his work of creation, he, what does he do? He steps back from it all. He looks at it. He sees everything that he's made. And what does he say? He says, it's very good. It's very good, not evil. And so that work that he's given to human beings, people created in his image, you and I, 
it's not a means to our own end. We don't work so that we can retire. Rather, we work because it's how we participate in God's mission of bringing fruitfulness and flourishing to the world. And so, so here's a question. How does thinking about work, how does thinking about work, not as a necessary evil, but as something that's got God-given purpose and God-given dignity, provided that it's lawful and beneficial for humanity, how does thinking about work like that how does it shape the way that you think about your schoolwork? How does, it, how does it shape the way that you approach being a college student? How does thinking about work the way that God thinks about work shape the way that you think about the part-time job that you're working right now just to get through school? How does it shape? What does it change about the career field you're considering or the career that you're going into when you finally graduate? See, what, what needs to change as a result of knowing that God wants you to work? Your attitude? Your integrity? Your honesty? Your work ethic? You see, what I want us to see tonight is that the God of the universe is a God who works. The God of the universe, the God of the Bible is a God who works. And part of his good purpose is for you and for me to do the same. Second myth. If you don't love your job, quit. Find a new one. Most of you are probably too young to remember, but, but no doubt you've since seen the footage from 2001 of the two airplanes that flew into the World Trade Center in New York City. Uh, and if you remember seeing that or the, the, the footage after the fact, you, you probably remember uh, the, the thousands of people that were rushing down those staircases uh, trying to avoid danger. But, but what was really interesting is that thousands of people are trying to escape harm's way. What was happening? Hundreds of people were running up the same stairs. Hundreds of rescue workers, hundreds of firefighters and police officers were running up into danger to help whoever and however they could, knowing knowing that they were risking their lives, and many of them, in fact, died. Now, in the aftermath of 9-11, our nation, rightfully so, they, they, they call these brave rescue workers heroes, right? And if you've seen any of these interviews, what's interesting, and you see it over and over, you hear it over and over again, is that many of them say, we're not heroes. We were just doing our job. We are just doing our job. Now, of course, it wasn't just a job for these men and women, right? If it's just a job, you don't run into danger. You don't sacrifice your life for just a job. No, it was more than that. They saw their work as something that gave them purpose, something that gave them satisfaction, something that had dignity. It was something they loved. Maybe you've heard the saying, choose a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. We all kind of want that, don't we? We all want to do something. We want to find a job that we love. Maybe you saw uh, Monday Night Football last night. I was watching it. Uh, before last night, one of the Packers receivers, Alan Lazard, uh, had never caught a pass from um, Aaron Rodgers in a regular season game. Last night, though, was very different. Uh, he had a big touchdown. He had several catches on the last drive. It, in a lot of ways, helped win them the game. 
And after the, after the game, he's, he's doing this, this uh, uh, interview. He's talking to a reporter, just, you know, bravado, oozing with confidence. He says, man, I'm, he's beating his chest. Man, I'm made for this stuff, right? Man, I'm made for this. Just feed me the ball. We kind of want that, don't we? I mean, maybe not to, to beat our chest and scream at a reporter and be a professional football player, but we want to find a job that we love. We want to do something that we feel like God has created us for, that, that God has made us for. But what if that's not how we feel about our jobs? Or what if we have a job or get a job and we have that feeling initially, but eventually it fades away? What do we do then? Do we quit? Find another one? Well, maybe, but maybe not. See, I, I've been talking to, to lots of people over the last several weeks about, uh, about work, people who are working in their 20s, people who work with people who work in their 20s, people who are way past their 20s, but remember what working in their 20s was like. You know what the most common theme among all of those conversations was? Work is both wonderful and miserable. Work is both wonderful and miserable. Every single one of them said to me, sometimes work is really hard and most people in their 20s aren't prepared for it. Sometimes work is really hard and most people in their 20s aren't prepared for it. They go on to say, especially the transition from college to that first job. Even if it's a job you think that you love, they say you should expect it to be hard at times and maybe for a while. Now, we might not expect it, we might not like it, but, but that work is challenging, that work is difficult. It, it makes sense because this is exactly the story that the Bible teaches. That work is both wonderful and fulfilling and full of dignity and purpose, but it's also painful and frustrating and toilsome. Why is it that way? Remember earlier I said that part of being created in God's image is, is having the, the responsibility and the authority to rule as God's representatives in the world. God gave Adam and Eve a, a choice about how they could rule. They could use their authority for the benefit of others, for the world, to help it flourish, or they could turn away from God and they could use that authority to define good and evil for themselves and their own advantage. And tragically, we know how the story goes, right? They choose the latter, and sin enters into the biblical story because of their rebellion. Pick up in Genesis 3, verse 17. To Adam, God said, this is after they've sinned, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed? Cursed. Cursed. Old English. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So God says that because of Adam's sin, he curses the ground. Because of Adam's sin, God curses the ground. Creation now thwarts Adam's, mankind's efforts to cultivate. Adam's work becomes toilsome, it becomes difficult, it becomes frustrating. See, among many things, what, what that means for you and for me is that, that sometimes our work is going to feel really good. Sometimes it's gonna feel miserable. 
At times, we're gonna love our jobs. We're gonna take pleasure in using the gifts that God has given us, that God has created us for. We're going to enjoy our work, but sometimes we won't. Sometimes our work isn't gonna be easy. We'll get bored. We'll clash with coworkers. We'll get annoyed. We'll grow weary. We'll become cynical that we're not making the impact that we expected to make fast enough, or we'll see someone else making an impact that we're not making. See, work at times is going to be frustrating, trust me. But quitting your job because you don't love what you're doing isn't going to fix the problem. It's just going to take the same set of problems to a new job. See, maybe instead of chasing a job that we love, a job that we're just passionate about 24-7, maybe God is actually calling us to lean into whatever job he provides. To work hard even when we don't love what we're doing, to develop a skill set so that we can advance God's kingdom, not our own. See, all my working friends, all the, all the people I, I mentioned that I've been talking to, uh, they told me, hey, you should tell them this. You should say that it's important for them to know that it might take a while for you to enjoy your job. It might take you guys a while for you to actually enjoy what you're doing. And it might take even longer for you to get good at it. So don't quit just because it's hard. Don't quit just because you don't love it right away. Give it time. Third myth, last myth. Work is mostly about you. Uh, Interestingly, one of the random facts that, that Barna discovered in that research that I mentioned earlier, completely unrelated to the book they were writing, is that 26% of teenagers, 26% of teenagers think you think they will definitely or probably become famous by the time they turn 25. 26% of teenagers think they will definitely or probably become famous by the time they turn 25. That's great, isn't it? Now, now, of course, we are and we can laugh at the improbabilities of that reality. But, but, I think if we're honest, we also need to acknowledge that whether we think we're going to be famous someday or not, the allure for us to become that is strong, right? Right? I mean, we all want to quote unquote make it, don't we? And we don't wanna just make it. Many of us, or we don't just want it. Many of us actually expect it. And I think, I think that we expect it because that idea has been instilled in us since a young age. See, we've grown up in the, the every kid gets a trophy for everything generation. If you try hard, you get a reward. If you give a good effort, well, here's your trophy. And so being rewarded and praised and affirmed all the time as a kid, it creates this expectation that, that everywhere we go, people are gonna do the same for us. And unfortunately, that carries over into our jobs. We expect Praise. We assume that we're gonna give, be given leadership positions. We, we want responsibilities and expect accolades. And, and when we don't get those things as quickly as we think or, or as quickly as we want, we feel snubbed or angry or shame because we don't have them. We don't get them. See, I think for a lot of us, if we're really honest, work is mostly about ourselves, self-development, personal gratification, an opportunity to climb the ladder to greater influence and prestige. We see our jobs as an opportunity to build a personal brand that we can take wherever we go next. 
Now, of course, what I'm not saying is that, that, that it's wrong to develop and grow. We, we have to do that. We have to have ambition. It's, it's okay to aspire to greater heights and responsibilities within your career, but we have to ask ourselves, I want you to ask yourself, is your view of work mostly me-centered or kingdom-centered? Is your view of your work mostly me-centered or, or kingdom-centered? The Gospel of Mark, Jesus is talking to his friends, he's talking to his disciples, and he says this, pick up in, in chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus called the disciples together and he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, what Jesus is doing here, he's calling his disciples to reject a life of, of self-serving and self-promoting leadership in favor of a life of self-sacrifice, self-service to other people. See, Jesus says to us that, that asking ourselves, what job is going to give me the most money? What job is going to give me the most status? What job is going to help me retire the quickest? That's the wrong question. Instead, Jesus says that you and I should be asking how, with our existing abilities and opportunities, how can we be of greatest service to others? And so what this means is that inspecting accolades out of the gate, we should embrace being a servant. We should embrace being, uh, having humility in our jobs, among our coworkers, among our friends. That we should work hard for the benefit of other people, not just ourselves. That we should expect and embrace the inevitable bottom of the totem pole that many of us will find ourselves at. That we should see our work as an opportunity to, opportunity to love and serve other people. If God himself came not to be served but to serve, can't we do the same? If God came not to be served, but to serve, can't we do the same? See, that's exactly what Jesus is inviting you and I to do. Will we? Will we serve other people in our jobs? I, I wanna close tonight with a, a Wendell Berry quote that I came across the other day. If you aren't familiar with Wendell Berry, he's a, among many things, he's a philosopher, he's an author. Uh, in talking about the good life, he's talking about the good life, this is what he says. This is what he says. He says, slow down, pay attention, do good work, love your neighbors, love your place, stay in your place, settle for less, enjoy it more. As the music team comes up, slow down, pay attention, do good work, love your neighbors, love your place, stay in your place, Settle for less, enjoy it for more. Now can you imagine for a second, can you imagine for a second what would happen if we all embraced the wisdom in that quote? If we were a group of people on campus for now but eventually out in the workplace, wherever that is, motivated to see the dignity and the purpose of our daily work, to stick around when things are hard, 
to serve other people instead of promoting ourselves? How would that, how would that change our schools? How would that change our time in college? How would that change our companies, our communities, our families? See, what sort of difference in the world would it make if we were a people who see work and faith in Jesus is inseparable? See, we need Christian coaches and teachers and communicators and entertainers and nurses and doctors, Christian men and women serving in the armed forces, educators, office managers, architects, builders, bankers, professionals, laborers, business leaders and artisans and stay-at-home parents. We need people who see work and faith in Jesus as inseparable. See, our work, it has dignity. I want us to walk away tonight seeing that our work, it has dignity, it has purpose, and God is inviting us to see it, to use it, to transform our world for the better, to bring flourishing, to help others, and to bring honor and glory to God. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. Most importantly, to get connected to Veritas, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening.